Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, I'll be talking to Kit Nichols, who is director of the Center for Writing at the Cooper Union. I've heard the Center for Writing described like this. Representatives of big-name schools come and see. Representatives of big-name schools walk away asking, why don't we have something like that? The Center for Writing offers support in all types of written and spoken communication, and the offer is extended to everyone studying or working at this private college in New York City, the Cooper Union. The model of the Center's support is one-on-one sessions and small group sessions, 60 minutes as a one-off appointment, or much more typically, 60 minutes week after week with a dedicated writing associate, as they're called. The recipe for good writing is hard work under the tutelage of hardworking professionals. Kit Nichols is the director. An educator at heart, a writer in fact, Kit Nichols has led the Center for Writing for four years and in that relatively short period has transformed a modest writing across the curriculum program into a cooperation that can just fulfill demand, has guided an amazing team of writers educated at great schools and working themselves on great projects, and has helped students and staff and faculty alike to finish work, to start work, and generally to improve their skills at communication. Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. We talk to educators and to editors, to writing academics and to reading academics, to those identifying with scholarship and to those identifying with communication, and of course, to those identifying with both, because scholarly communication aims to be the plus sign between both. Scholarly communication is about scholarship, about the research in, the work in, and the instruction in writing. And scholarly communication is about communication, about the selection of, the production of, and the dissemination of knowledge. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there too, we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So let's begin today's episode. Kit Nichols and the Cooper Union Center for Writing. Kit, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Um, I am very much interested in all kinds of things here at the uh, Cooper Union Center for Writing, the pedagogy, the people who work there, the people who come there, and so on. But first off, I'm interested in you, and I'd like to hear what is it that led you into this position? What about you has um, sort of been the background for uh, the position that you're in now? Yeah, so I I started working in writing centers about 15 years ago. Um, It was, uh, you know, a job that I heard about that was nearby. I was studying at NYU. Um, I'd been on strike. Uh, The graduate student union uh, was on strike for six months 
uh, back in 2005, 2006. And so coming out of the summer after that academic year, I was even more hard up for money than, than the average grad student. Um, so I, I found my way into this job working as a writing associate at Cooper Union's Center for Writing. Um, and I think, you know, these days maybe the, the academic job track that, you know, you sort of work your way up within a single institution, uh, that sounds unusual or maybe even something that people might disparage these days. Um, but uh, it gave me a chance to learn the ropes. And, you know, almost immediately when I started in that work, I was surrounded by professionals who knew what they were doing, who thought about teaching way more than I had. Um, but also I was working with these totally brilliant students at Cooper. Uh, you know, at the time the Cooper Union was an entirely free school. If you got in, uh, you had a full tuition scholarship. Um, one of my first students uh, was this guy, Awal Arizku, who has gone on to be a really quite famous photographer. Uh, he took a, uh, a photograph of Beyonce that uh, when she was pregnant, that was on the cover of Vanity Fair. That's probably the, the best known uh, bit of photography out there by, by Awal. Um, and he might not even remember me, but I remember working with him, I think literally my first day on the job. Um, and here was this brilliant artist um, who had gone to a not so great high school, but he was very polished in his uh, spoken language. And immediately I was confronted with the question of, you know, how do I help this student uh, complete the coursework? Uh, but more than anything, how do I help this student find his own voice on the page? And I was hooked, you know, from that point on, uh, you know, the, the pleasure of getting to meet all of these students, having the time to see them week after week, one-on-one, -on -one, uh, and then the high standards that, that were set in the center. The, the previous director, Gwen Hyman, uh, created just this spectacular culture that I was really lucky to inherit when I took over as director. Um, so I've been living in writing centers for the past 15 years, uh, even when I was still kind of just moonlighting at, at Cooper when I had a, a full-time teaching position elsewhere. Um, you know, really the the one-on-one -on -one work was the thing that excited me the most. As much as I love classroom teaching and as much as um, you know, I just published a book about it, uh, it's the writing center work that that really drives most of my passion as a teacher. All right. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. I mean, hooked from one of the first sessions that you were actually in. <laughs> um, what would you say then is sort of the the contrast then that you experience before a class or in the one-on-one -on -one, uh, scenario? Yeah, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that a little bit this morning. So I was thinking about, you know, and uh, Daniel, you and I spoke about our uh, my book about the syllabus recently. Um, and there's a chapter in that book about turning a classroom into a community. And I was thinking, well, huh, what is it about the one-on-one? -on -one? Because you, you can't really have a full-on community with, with uh, two people. Um, but then it occurred to me that really working with students one-on-one -on -one gave me a chance to, to realize that real community is actually built out of, you know, smaller units. Uh, otherwise, you just have imagined community. You know, you're in Benedict Anderson land. Um, and uh, a classroom isn't built around print capitalism, really. Uh, it's built around a lot of smaller relationships that eventually add up to something bigger. And, and I think it's, it's something about the, the possibility of really getting to know where a student is coming from, uh, to discover what that student's strengths are, to be able to hear what the student's struggling with, 
um, and really build an individualized plan for that student, right? Um, and the really glorious thing about writing center work done right is that it's not really, you know, you, the, the writing associate or the tutor, as I think more people would you know, call us. Um, it's not the tutor building the work exactly, right? It's really a collaborative process. And more than anything, the goal is to set the student free from, from needing us. So um, you're helping somebody figure out what they need to do to make the kind of work that they want to make. And, and I think, you know, that becomes a model when you start thinking, oh, right, that is really how people largely learn how to write is that they have to develop uh, their own sense of taste. We don't talk about taste in scholarship very often, um, unless we're talking about Pierre Bourdieu or something, right? But, um, <laughs> but the, you know, the taste that we develop individually for what we think is the great work. Um, you know, it, it takes a while. Uh, this is what I think Ira Glass said something about this a while ago, um, that, you know, once you have a, a sense of taste that you, that you feel good about, it's just a matter of doing the hard work to figure out how to make the, the kind of work that matches that sense of taste. Um, so when you see it one-on-one, you start to be able to imagine how that translates into the classroom. So I, you know, I love classroom teaching as well, but I don't think I would understand it in anything like the same way if I didn't have uh, such a strong grounding in, you know, years and years and years and hundreds of students, uh, literally thousands of hours of uh, one-on-one work. I, I mean, this, I find this quite fascinating, this idea about the uh, taste and the developing. Also, as you said, finding a voice, which is something that probably people who think about writing are more comfortable hearing and understanding, but this idea of taste and, and Ira, Ira Glass's comment there seems so true. And I think also it seems to get at one of those major differences. I'm completely on board with you when you say, yes, you have on the one hand a, a community unit in the one-on-one session, and then you have a community in, in the classroom. But I am not sure if it would be possible in a classroom setting to be dealing with taste. Aren't you once you get beyond three, four uh, in a group who's too large, really, to take on such an intimate experience? Well, you know, it's, I think it's a question of setting the terms for the whole class such that they can all converse with each other about what it is that they're trying to make. And, you know, this, I think uh, this is maybe an idea that would scare some people. Uh, because I, I don't think that you would wind up with one single sense of what kind of work people will make at the end of a course. Uh, and, you know, this is a view formed by the fact that I teach at a college where we don't graduate any uh, literature scholars, right? We only graduate engineers, architects, and artists. So there's nobody in, in my own specific discipline. Um, so what does that mean practically? Well, you know, I love to do exercises in my classroom, for example, where I, I'll ask um, odd questions that sort of force the students out of their comfort zone. For example, what does thinking sound like? That's a weird question, right? Um, what does it mean to ask what thinking sounds like? Uh, and I learned this, uh, that question specifically, I learned um, from Pat Hoy, who used to direct the writing program at, at New York University. Um, and I've run with that question ever since because it's, it's such a weird question. But if you have, let's say you have uh, two different uh, essays in front of you. I always like to go back to James Baldwin. Baldwin's, you know, a perfect example of, of uh, somebody who has a really refined voice. Um, so you ask the students, you know, what does thinking sound like 
in this essay by James Baldwin? Where is he thinking? Now, of course, he's thinking everywhere. It's Baldwin, right? Um, but they could, they can start to identify the kind of rhetorical or sonic tics of thinking. You know, huh? Well, there's a lot of hmm. You know, uh, maybe or perhaps, right? That tends to be associated with thinking. Uh, you see a an increase in conceptual language, right? So. Um, language that has less concretion and more abstraction. And as the students start, start to be able to define that stuff, you're not telling them what an exact voice is going to have to be, right, that will be theirs. But you are giving them the terms by which they can sort of start to assess for themselves in their writing, whether they're, they're moving into the realm of ideas. So, you know, even if there won't be some singular community taste, you're still giving them a vocabulary. In fact, they're largely giving themselves that vocabulary, right? By, by studying smart writers. Uh, they're building a vocabulary where they can start to figure out, huh, well, maybe that's why I like this thing that I like. And maybe this I, is what I have to do to sound like that thing, but also like myself. Well, I mean, to follow up the meta- metaphor, what I see is you're really just teaching them how to cook. If it's taste that they're after, you're giving them all the ingredients a good cook is going to be able to make something that they like and perhaps even something that someone else likes, but they, they know how to cook. Well, you know, <laughs> and I, Daniel, it... I, I, spent two, uh, I spent two semesters working with uh, an architecture student in an independent study, um, the weirdest independent study. Uh, he had been in my, um, an Irish literature course that I taught. Um, and we, we share that in common, Dan, right? You're also uh, in, in Irish studies. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, uh, have been. Yes. Have mm-hmm. been. Yeah. Not, not these <laughs> days. I'm. It's. It's all. It's all writing and pedagogy all the time over here for me too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the the independent study was was actually the student working on a a very conceptual cookbook, um, and he was interested less in helping people learn particular recipes or even think about particular ingredients. He was he was more interested in sort of thinking about what what tools are. Um, like literally what is a, what is a cooking tool? How does a knife work? What does a knife want? Um, you know, what does the cutting board want <laughs> sort of, you know, in, in its very being, right? This is, this is a deeply philosophical approach to cooking. And I think, I think it's, it's closer to that, uh, that I'm trying to do with students and also one-on-one. I mean, it, it's, uh, in a way it's really telling that, uh, that that student wanted to work on this, uh, on this philosophical cookbook. Uh, he was also very interested in shopping, by the way, um, the, the ethics of shopping, not so much in terms of like, you know, are you, are you purchasing, uh, you know, grass fed beef or no beef really, uh, if you want to be truly ethical these days, um, no, no shame to anybody who, who still wants to eat their beef. Um, but it was more about, you know, what is the process? What's the mindset? What's the ethos that you have? as you go about the process of gathering your ingredients. And I, I, think, I think that's it. I think it's about drilling uh, down into like why we do what we do um, and looking at you know, professional written texts, not from the perspective that they're um, you know, these, these kind of um, gorgeous mountain ranges that are unapproachable, but in fact, to see exactly what tectonic shifts allowed them to be produced in the first place. I think it's also uh, raising an awareness, uh, which I would say certainly your writing associate, associates you. Um, I know I uh, experience it that way. Raising an awareness for 
when you're reading a text, you have to also not even have to, you almost naturally also see how it was written. Mm -hmm. I mean, this may sound, this may sound megalomaniac, but often when I'm reading a text, I think, how would I have gotten to the place to write it just like that? Oh, that's, and, that's a lovely thought, Daniel. Yeah. And, and it is the way I very often look at it. And, 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 and what you're talking about, um, when you say uh, that you're trying to put together the ingredients or in a much more abstract sense of giving them the thinking tools to be able to understand how to write, it does also uh, come down to a bit of, I mean, there's so much written out there. There's so many texts. There's so many avenues a person could choose to explore the written word. So you do have to make some selection. I think at some point, you really have to go with what, not to sound all sort of sappy, but with what you believe in, with what gives back to your own voice, yeah? What, what uh, sort of refines your own taste in a sense. Yeah, I, I like to do, um, and this is the kind of thing you certainly can't do one-on-one, -on -one, but in a, in a classroom, I've got a, a hokey uh, little demonstration, a physics demonstration, uh, about resonant frequencies. Um, and, you know, this is a little experiment that uh, you can buy them online. It's just two little wooden boxes with two tuning forks. And the tuning forks are attuned to the same pitch. And if you strike the tuning fork um, on one of the boxes, say 30 feet away, you know, you put a student at one end of the classroom and you put a student at the other end of the classroom and you strike the tuning fork in one box. And then, the you know, it's, so long as you've got the open end of the box pointing straight at the other box, the other tuning fork starts resonating. Um, and, and I think that's a, a useful metaphor for imagining just what happens when a reader finds a text that does something for them. Um, and, you know, I think, I think we're in a moment where we're far more attentive to the incredibly complex diversity of ideas and backgrounds and intentions and goals that people have um, which, which absolutely, I think, uh, means that you're right, Daniel, that you have to find a way, um, you have to find a way to help students figure out what they love. Um, because people talk about giving students models. And, uh, one of the things this is like, I've wrestled with this these past few years. Uh, I still don't stock a set of like excellent student essays for our students to look at. Um, I still don't think it makes sense to show them uh, like this is what your work should look like. And even if I were giving them three examples, I'd much rather that they, you know, gain the tools to find all kinds of great published work that um, that starts to align with what they're trying to produce themselves and for them to figure out what it is that they want to make. So it, it is quite personal, which of course, that's one of the things that you, you get a away from when you're in the one-on-one -on -one that you're stuck with in the classroom, which is in the classroom, you, you do have to generally exercise some control over the reading list, um, which is, you know, an increasingly uncomfortable job. Uh, in, in a writing center, you know, you really can task the students with trying to bring in some of their own material, even if they're getting through coursework where there's assigned texts. Very often they have the chance to surround whatever the assigned text is with something else that they've found. Um, and it's just glorious work. Like, Hey, okay. What, what is it that you love? Um, if you haven't found it yet, let's think together about how you find that kind of work. Let's look at some of the portals online where you can find lots of excellent published essays, for example. I think model is 
probably a, a broken method in a sense. I mean, I, I, see, I see why uh, you're yeah, trying to get away from, from that view. I mean, if you take models, I mean, models have sort of dominated uh, the view of literature for decades, if not centuries. I mean, if I think back to the 18th century and and uh, the, the beginnings of uh, the bard cult and Shakespeare was the greatest, and then you hear other voices, uh, Samuel Johnson tearing him down and saying everything here is in <laughs> uh, bad grammar, bad taste or whatnot. Uh, I think what you'd probably want to be giving them, which is very much what, 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 what you're talking about as far as, I, as far as I understand you, is the ability to see in almost any text, and I'd go so far as the back of a cereal box, what mm-hmm. in it is worthwhile and what in it is not, or what, if you like more practical views, what in it is something that you might be able to use and what not. Yeah, I, I think back to my undergraduate days. I, I took a lot of coursework in music and uh, musicology specifically. But um, my first year, I took a course in composition uh, with the composer Bright Shang, who was uh, at that moment in the late '90s was was a real sort of international phenomenon because he was combining traditional Chinese instruments with Western orchestral instruments. And I remember this line has stuck with me this whole time. He was sitting at a, at a piano in the classroom and he was, you know, sort of playing through different approaches to solving a problem, basically. And, and he said this, and, uh, and I'm quoting it word for word because it's perfect as he said it. He said, the only thing that matter is sound good. And okay, technically, grammatically, not right. Doesn't matter at all, Right. Um, the, the line perfectly expresses the idea, right? It's like a little bit of poetry. Um, indeed, right? The only thing that matters is sound good. Um, and I think that we're, we're at this point where, yes, you need uh, enough agreement or standards of communication um, so that you can reach the audience you're trying to reach. At the same time, though, um, well, there's a lot of audiences, <laughs> you know? I think, you know, there's a, Certainly, I mean, that is the, the biggest thing happening in Writing Center scholarship in the U.S., uh, which is, I, I don't publish Writing Center scholarship, but I, I follow it a little bit. You know, the biggest thing that's happening is people thinking through uh, all of the multiple audiences and communities for which we write. You know, so, and, and I think we're seeing, uh, there isn't one scholarly community now. When we talk about scholarly communications, uh, that really has to be plural, just like everything else. A, a very good correction to the name for the <laughs> to the name for the podcast. I agree. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're talking about communities. We're talking about different languages. This is, in fact, um, my listeners who might have followed a little bit on my biography will know that I also teach at a, a writing center in Germany. Though um, this is something that I also try to communicate. I have uh, predominantly. Um, Natural, uh, natural scientists who are coming to me, students of biology and chemistry and so on. And I try to tell them that they're speaking in chemical English. I try to tell them that they're speaking in cellular biology English and so on and so forth. This uh, has deep lexical, deep grammatical effects on the language, but it's also as you just say, with an audience, uh, there's only so many people interested in your work. (laughs) There's only so many people who can make sense of your work. And uh, that's uh, part of what the purpose of your your text is, is to get out there and to communicate to those people. 
Yeah, I, I had a an encounter. I was doing a workshop uh, years ago, um, uh, and going through basically just looking through some some sentences. Uh, I had just pulled a set of sentences from some student papers. I was visiting somebody else's course, um, and I was just going through these sentences and just you know asking the students for their feedback and what they thought could be more effective in, in the individual sentences. And at the end of the workshop, uh, a very smart architecture student raised her hand and said, well, but doesn't everybody have a right to, to speak in whatever way they want to? And I responded, yes, and every reader has a right to choose to ignore it if they don't get it. Um, and she showed up in the writing center the next day, by the way, <laughs> became, <laughs> and became a regular. She kept coming back. Um, Honesty is the best policy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, on your answer. You know? <laughs> so you know the the it's a really it's a it's a really complicated dance, and it's a highly social dance, right? I mean, we're uh, writing and reading and speaking. These these are social activities. Um, you know, I'm certainly not a prescriptivist. Um, I I think that we're always adjusting how we think about about rules and standards. Um, and our goal really is just to help, I mean, you know, we got to help students find their audiences, um, and learn how to enter into, uh, these increasingly sophisticated, uh, thought communities. Um, you know, what you said about, about, you know, say, a, a chemistry student, uh, definitely resonates with me because we spend a lot of time in our writing center looking at lab reports or, uh, technical reports and providing support to the engineering school. And, you know, it's, uh, I'm not an engineer by training. I did, I did study in the engineering school, uh, as an undergraduate for one year before I, I sort of wandered off and did a degree in poetry. Um, and you wandered uh, pretty far, <laughs> I wandered pretty far, although, well, you know, uh, by, by my senior year though, I took a, a course in, uh, complex adaptive systems. That was a really great, uh, small, highly interdisciplinary course, um, and what was interesting is that I realized the professor teaching that course was very good friends with the, uh, the main poetry professor that I worked with. Uh, and I could see once, once I'd taken that course, I could see his influence in some of the poems that she was publishing. And I could very much see her influence on the books that he was publishing. So um, maybe, maybe not that far afield, right? I mean, you know, poetry and physics are, are sort of obviously um, disciplines that people like to put together. Uh, given how incredibly complex and, uh, you know, mind bending, uh, contemporary physics is, <laughs> I can't pretend that I understand that stuff. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think it's as mind bending and complex as language. I would say the universe is language, <laughs> um, but some people would probably say I'm crazy. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's the old Lewis Thomas view, right? That the, uh, you know, and this is getting back to the complexity theory. Um, you know, if we imagine that humans are sort of like ants, uh, building an anthill and we, you know, we don't have the whole instruction set each of us individually yet somehow we're contributing to some bigger thing. Uh, Lewis Thomas, you know, was a biologist, essayist, um, in the seventies and eighties, um, said that language would be that anthill from his perspective. Um, even though he was, you know, a research biologist, he was really interested in, in uh, in human language. Um, and I think, and I think, you know, there's there's more flexibility in every part of human language than we ever uh, acknowledge. I mean, even within a chem lab, uh, there's all kinds of decisions that the writer has to make. Um, you know, the lab report format is actually slightly more flexible than people think it is. Only only slightly, but a bit more flexible. 
Um, and that's something that we wrestle with uh, all, all the time. I mean, you know, how much passive voice do you deploy uh, in a technical report? Um, I imagine that's one that you bash your head against, Daniel. <laughs> it is one of the things. Uh, the, the other main thing, really, is that uh, they don't view a, a lab report or a research article or whatever it might be as um, just simply something that has to get done and maybe has to get done in a certain way. Exactly what you're talking about, this idea of opening up the choices that are naturally entailed in any text that you go to write. That, that, that's part of what writing is. No one, no one could, I mean, unless, no, no one could really write the exact same text. Even the most formulaic of texts always involve the writer contributing and uh, shaping and so on and so forth. And, th and, and if you can just give that view, I think you will end up with a better lab report at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's partly about moving away from you know, a very teacher-centered conception of student writing where, um, you know, the reason you're writing is because you uh, need to get a grade. Um, you know, th that's one of the worst reasons to write <laughs> because somebody's, you know, effectively, I'm writing because somebody's making me do it um, as opposed to I'm writing because I want to reach an audience. And, and you kind of, I mean, you, uh, I would go so far as to say you actually kind of can't really write. If we understand writing, in, in its sort of deeper, richer sense. You really aren't writing unless you're writing for a real audience, not just for somebody who's paid to read it. That's the key. I, 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 would, I would totally agree. I mean, this, this idea that you're not really writing, and that's, what, that's the sense that I get from many students. And I would think also even faculty, when it comes to the point of writing up, the famous writing up in the sciences, that uh, this is just a stage, a necessity, a thing that's got to be just sort of got around or got through in some way. But if you can actually provide them with the view that the writing is the research, that you're doing your research right now as well, or even if you can get them to the point to just drop out the as well and say, you're doing your research still, which makes a lot more sense to me, in fact, because what you're doing is you're getting it out to that community who needs to know it. So in other mm -hmm. words, we get back to it's for an audience. I mean, you're writing for someone. You're getting that content through so they understand it. Yeah, and, and uh, that, that idea that the writing is the research uh, sounds just right. I mean, you know, Slavoj Žižek once said, I, I don't write, I take notes and edit. Um, the, uh, which, you know, maybe, maybe uh, shows through in, in the uh, kind of copious output, um, which maybe could use a bit more editing sometime. No offense, Slavoj. Um, but, uh, but that, that basic principle that, you know, it's not like you do all of, you do all of this sort of prior work and then you sit down and write. Um, that's, that's a, that's a surefire way to produce some pretty terrible writing. Uh, it's much better to write your way through, um, which is, you know, exactly why at the outset, Daniel, you said, you know, that, that we, that our center, um, offers these ongoing sessions. And, you know, that's exactly the reason for the ongoing session model. We really try to steer students to commit to an hour a week for the entire term, because otherwise, you know, they, they almost um, automatically come to the assumption that the writing center is a place where you come when you're writing, as though that's a thing you do at the end. Um, and anybody who, who writes seriously knows that writing is this, you know, long, 
complicated process most of the time. Every once in a while, um, you know, if you're a poet, for example, you might get lucky. You might actually just sit down, have a moment of brilliance, and two hours later, you've got a lovely little poem. Um, but for most of us, that's not how it works. No, for most of us, what happens is you're walking with your dog two miles from a pen, and the best first sentence occurs to you. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you think, what was I thinking leaving the house without my notebook today? <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, what I'm, what I'm driving at clearly is that it's just sort of always below the surface and then sometimes above the surface, but writing is continual. Yes, but, I mean, uh, I... I, I just want, I wanted to jump in because I mean we, we've we've brought up many different topics, but uh, you brought us back to the sessions, which which I like because I do want to hear um, about the Center for Writing and its model uh, a little bit more precisely about the writing associates who works there and so on. But maybe take us right down into a session, if you could sort of characterize their sixty minutes, which um, I think. For some people, it might seem wow, that's kind of long. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they, they're typically, as you said, one-on-one, regular. So this is something that somebody commits to over the course of a term. Uh, could you give us sort of an inside view of what the sessions, how they how they run typically? Yeah. So maybe I'll I'll take you to the start of a semester. Um, we uh, do ongoing session signups on the first day of the term, starting at ten in the morning, uh, and this has been consistent. We do this every semester, even during the pandemic, even when we were online. Uh, a couple things changed online. Um, when we were in person, uh, the thing that produced is uh, a line of students going, you know, all the way down the hallway and around the corner, uh, which is the best PR, um, you know, for the, especially for incoming students to come and see, you know, dozens and dozens of, uh, of returning students uh, desperate to get in. Um, so we do our signups first come first served which creates a kind of energy around the, the desire to get in. Uh, it's, like, it's like waiting for great concert tickets. Um, and then we, we ask the students who are showing up on that first day to sign up to sign up. In other words, they sign up for a 10 minute appointment with me or with the associate director, uh, John Lundberg, who's a wonderful human being and really good at his job. And then we spend the next several days having, you know, endless one-on-one meetings ourselves with students where we, we kind of feel out what the student needs. Uh, and then we try to place them and, and match them with one of our writing associates. Um, so right from the beginning, we're really listening to what the students are looking for and trying to match them with somebody who's a good match. And if it's not a good match, uh, we always tell the students, nobody be offended. Just tell us if this isn't a good fit for you and we'll try to get you in with a different associate. So, so that's kind of the the framework is that already from the beginning, we're really listening to them. We're showing them that we sort of recognize them as individuals and we're doing some intellectual matchmaking. Uh, so typical first session, um, we're just feeling out who the student is. Uh, we're getting a sense for the student's history with writing, with their anxieties about writing, with their strengths in writing, um, with uh, and, and more broadly with, with their relationship to reading and with thinking. Um, you know, I always say that Center for Writing is in a way a bit of a misnomer. Really what we do is reading, writing, thinking, and speaking. Uh, and the thinking part is the key because, you know, you can't, do, um, you can't do any of those other three things very well without the thinking piece. So, you know, we, 
we tend to be fairly text-based. In other words, like let's really slow down and make sure that whatever you're reading is at the center of the sessions to start with. Um, because I'll always say, you know, if you think you have writer's block, well, just go back to reading, right? You can always take notes on the thing that you're reading. Uh, and I mean reading broadly. Uh, the thing you're reading might be a sculpture, right? We've got uh, plenty of students taking art history courses, or for that matter, uh, in, you know, in, in fine art, uh, producing their own work in studio classes. So, you know, a student might bring a sculpture into the writing center. Um, so that's the text. Let's read it. Also good advertisement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, even though it's yours, you know, let's pause and let's, let's interpret this text. Um, because you've got to get as close as possible to whatever the thing is that you're studying, right? It's sort of a scholarly principle. Um, sometimes you want to take the wide view and, and zoom out, but, um, you know, most of the best thinking emerges from a lot of inductive reasoning. Um, and we help students start to name what that, what that is, you know, what is inductive reasoning? What does it look like when you're thinking inductively? Um, but, you know, in terms of the practical, right? So a lot of looking at whatever the thing is we're looking at. And I, I always tell the writing associates that I work with, you can always judge yourself and, and see how well you're doing your job by asking yourself, what's the ratio of questions to declarative statements that I'm making? Uh, you want to be asking a lot of questions. You know, the more that the student's the one declaring and you're the one questioning, the better you're doing. Um, and then the other sort of major marker of, of sessions that are going right is if the writing associate finds themselves saying, write that down a lot. So, you know, a typical session really is just a lot of questioning the student to get the student to say things that the student maybe didn't know they could say. Uh, and then getting the student to get in the habit of writing down whatever they're thinking. Um, a lot of our students are much more comfortable in spoken language than they are in written language. So, you know, you use the, the sort of conversational as a, a way to get to the written. So this, this centrality of thinking, I find um, really fascinating because this is what so often has been said about writing, that clear writing comes from clear thinking or clear writing leads to clear thinking. Uh, how, how do you stand on that issue? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a complicated one. I, I tend to think that that's true, um, though, you know, what constitutes clear writing, I think, is, is, is a, a thorny issue. Um, but that being said, yes, I mean, I, I think when you get a student, so, you know, one of the ways students find their way to the center is, and this is not the majority, but it happens, um, they've handed in their first paper to a new professor, whether it's their first semester, their third or their fifth or whatever. Um, and the professor has responded very badly to the work. And now the student's freaked out and it's like, I thought I could write what's going on. And often what you see is that in those cases, the student is kind of trying to follow a formula, you know, especially at the beginning of college. Um, you know, we, we have the, the five paragraph essay here in the U S uh, is there an equivalent in, in the German education system, Daniel, like the sort of, you know, formula for producing an academic essay that students come into college with and you have to sort of move them to a, a more sophisticated model? Um, I don't want to offend any of my German listeners, but I would say that a lot. <laughs> I would say that a lot of German writing that I've encountered and my daughter is also at the high school system here, the gymnasium, as it's called. 
um, a lot of German writing is rather formulaic. Uh, Germans are quite used to writing in, you know, with with training. <laughs> well, that sounds horrible. I was going to say with training wheels. <laughs> um, they're, they're used to writing inside of a form. I mean, their creativity comes in making the form do its best in a sense. Uh, mm-hmm. So an equivalent of, let's say, an essay, where, Baldwin, as you, as you mentioned, where the form is really the function, so to speak. I don't, I don't really encounter a lot of that in uh, German writing. Yeah, so I mean, that's but so it sounds very similar to the U.S. Um, and okay. you know, a, a student who comes to us who and you can recognize the five paragraph essay very quickly. Um, there are five paragraph essays that are written in more than five paragraphs, but it's still basically a five paragraph essay, right? There's a uh, the defining feature is the thesis that isn't really a thesis; it's just sort of a list of things that you're going to prove. Um, and I always tell students, you know, if you're if if the concept you're working from is, I'm going to prove this thesis, you've already kind of got it backwards. Um, you know, the thesis, uh, which in, in, in our writing center, we, we call a claim, uh, simply to, to attach a different word to it so that we can sort of redefine what it is. Um, the thesis emerges from the evidence, not the other way around. You don't, you don't use the, you don't mount the evidence to prove the thesis. The thesis emerges organically from your work with the evidence, right? And um, the process of building a piece of writing is about uh, gathering a set of evidence, you know, according to really the highest principles you can you can find for yourself. So I'm I'm going to do my my best job of really trying to get down to the truth of whatever thing I'm studying, um, and then my thesis emerges as my best attempt to articulate my understanding of that evidence. Um, you know, I think that is so far from the way that our, our students are taught in the U S as well. Uh, there's so little space for truly forming their own ideas for having more control over what kind of evidence they're gathering. Um, and you know, and then this is the other piece of it. It's just really resource intensive to help students learn individually how to produce idiosyncratic forms that are sort of the, the correct expression of whatever idea it is that they formed for themselves. And um, that's the biggest shift when they get to college. And it takes, it takes a lot of effort to get students away from the, the formulaic and to this other place where, you know, the form and the content are, are truly working with each other. Um, so that's, that's never easy. And that's one of the other reasons for the ongoing session format is, you know, you need weeks and weeks and weeks to, to give students the space to experiment and to start to see what it means to build a form for themselves. Yeah, this precisely starting to see what it means to build a form for yourself. I mean, that's a, that's a reformulation, if, if I might revisit this idea of clear thinking, clear writing, of the way I would say I view it, that you need to find the form for whatever it is that you're trying to say is another way of saying, I need to find the method of getting it across to whomever you're trying to get it across to. You could think of, and this would be the way I would understand clear thinking and clear writing. You could think of it as clarifying thinking, clarifying writing. I I mean, your uh, friend and and, and colleague, uh, Bill Germano, uh, said in in another uh, context that uh, 
you never really know what you're thinking until you try to write it down. And he said he was quoting, of course, a hundred people before him who had said this, but I know that it's definitely the way that I write. It's in the writing. It's literally from word to word at times that I'm getting closer to, as as you say, the object of my study, whether that's a sculpture, a text, or some abstract idea. And that, that, no, there is certainly no overall sort of view as to what is clear, whether it's in thinking or in writing, but you can clarify what it is that you think and clarify it in writing and then clarify it in the end product through writing. Yeah. If you're studying something and uh, either you love the thing that you're studying, or for that matter, you think that whatever perspective you're going to to share with the world on whatever that thing is, if, if you want to do justice to to your own thinking work and to the material, then then you have to approach some kind of clarity. And you know, clarity is is less about adhering to some set of grammatical standards than it is about adhering to some kind of ethical standard. Um, you know, you you don't want to obfuscate. Uh, people love to go back to that old George Orwell essay, Politics in the English Language, and I, I think it still holds up pretty well. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a serious ethical obligation to try to be plain spoken and direct um, as much as you can be. Now, of course, sometimes that means rhetorically, uh, depending on what field you're in and what you're studying, that what you write might be pretty opaque to people outside of the discourse community that you're writing for. Um, so clarity means different things in different places. But but the point is, you know, you have a real obligation to get to the clearest possible statement and understanding of the thing. Um, so I, I think the shift is, you know, maybe the old version of clear writing, clear thinking was built around um, a set of uh, pretty straightforward gra- grammatical standards. Um, now, I think the ethical obligation is the big one, um, especially uh, given our, our global political context, uh, and especially here in the U.S., uh, where disinformation and obfuscation are everywhere. Um, the, it's a serious, it's a really serious thing. Um, and, you know, it feels like um, if you're in a writing center these days, you do kind of feel like you're, you're fighting to preserve the possibility of clarity um, because it's, it's getting harder and harder. I think the word ethical and ethics in writing is not something that springs to most people's minds. And the connection might be a step or two beyond what most people would immediately think is the object of a writing center or the object of good writing. I I entirely follow, though, uh, what you're saying. And I think it gets back to the why of writing. Why is it that this person, this student in this particular class has picked up this assignment and has to now write about that object? For yeah. most students, uh, for most students, I would say I would I would I would go back to your earlier characterization of they're fulfilling a requirement. They are sort of reactivating all of the f- writing to formula that they learned because they actually want to do their best job at it, and that for them would be their best job. And it seems that in writing instruction, the key, and this is why it, it's just so wonderful that thinking is at the center of your at your center. 
at the center of your center. <laughs> I'm supposed to be teaching style and writing. <laughs> the focus of your center <laughs> um, is that that's precisely what you're trying to shift the view toward. You're trying to sh- say that uh, the best handling of this topic, the best text that you're going to end up with is if you approach it. Yeah, that's, I, I, think, that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, the, the space for idiosyncrasy and the space for individual thought, uh, it's pretty hard to find these days. There's a, there's a, it's funny how each generation reproduces the same critique of the younger generation, right? That they're narcissistic, that they're myopic. Um, and we're hearing it, you know, again, uh, just like we've always been hearing it. Um, but, you know, I think, I think it's actually the opposite. If you want to understand where younger writers struggle, uh, okay, when they're writing to the formula, they're doing, they're trying to do the thing that we're asking them to do. Uh, they've been rewarded so far in the education system for producing rote formulaic work. Um, and that rote formulaic work, by the way, is uh, deeply alienating and alienated. I mean, there, there's no space for the individual student in most of the work they're asked to do. Um, you know, one of the things that we try to practice in the center is Uh, So let's say a student is in a history course and they're having a hard time finding their way into the material. Um, We always want to ask them, well, what's your experience of the sort of themes or concepts associated with whatever it is that you're studying? Um, And in fact, let's step away from, you know, writing this essay about some particular, you know, secondary uh, piece of scholarship about the French Revolution or whatever. Let's step away from that. Um, What's your experience of thinking about the set of trade-offs that you make when you think about how to build a community or a society? You know, what, what's your understanding of what a social contract is? How, what language would you use to talk about that? Uh, tell me about an experience where you had to negotiate that kind of political situation. Um, because in fact, if you want to sort of undo that alienation and bring the writer to a point where she can actually uh, start to express serious ideas about the past or about different disciplines that she's not familiar with or about uh, different different uh, parts of the world with which she's unfamiliar. Um, it's got to start from her own experience. Uh, otherwise, you know, the, the students could remain alienated and will remain just trying to do the formulaic thing. And what and and your method right there, if I if I can jump in, your method right there is also a perfect counter and a perfect antidote to um, regurgitation. Because when you go through and ask such questions of social contract as you as you just played out there, you also learn where it is that you need to find out more. You also learn what it is that for you, for yourself, are gaps. What is it that I don't quite know or have never experienced in this area? Where do I need to read or somehow find out more information about? Because the typical view is to start at Wikipedia, what has everyone else said, and uh, just rattle down the literature review, isn't it? Yeah. And, and also for that matter, um, you know, students are smart, right? We, we I think uh, one of the biggest mistakes people in education make is um, assuming that students can't do things that they can do. Um, one of the kinds of gaps that students will discover, you know, just taking this French Revolution ex- example uh, a little bit further, is that Literature about the French Revolution alone won't actually fill in for the student what they need to know about social contract and, and what's, what's changed and how we think about it over the past couple hundred years. Um, almost certainly, 
they're going to find themselves wanting to study, say, for example, the American Civil Rights Movement, or they might want to study South Africa. Um, they might want to, that might take them to thinking about like truth and reconciliation uh, and, and some of the other processes by which people try to imagine how they can repair badly broken social contracts. Um, you know, reparations. Uh, a lot of students would love to think about reparations for slavery in, in the U.S. Uh, and what does that have to do with the French Revolution? Well, actually quite a bit. Like these things are not wildly disparate from each other. And, and you know, that's a, now we're sort of getting into curriculum a little, <laughs> but the, <laughs> but that's kind of the, that's the pleasure of the one-on-one again, is that it, it gives you the space to, even if in, a, in, in the student's coursework, the curriculum isn't really adequate to the historical moment that we're in. Um, there's still space for the student to fill that in. And maybe that's even better in a way, uh, because now the student owns the work. And, you know, as soon as something, I, I, I don't know about you, Daniel, I'm a, I'm a deeply stubborn person. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking back, uh, one of my best friends in, in high school bought me a, a Tom Waits album, right? And I sat on that album, it was Mule Variations, right? Like one of the really great records. Uh, and I sat on that, that CD, this is, I'm dating myself, this is the 90s. Um, I'm sitting, I sat on that CD for two years before I gave it a listen. Why? Because I didn't choose it for myself. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's stubborn. <laughs> that is pretty stubborn. Uh, I might be more stubborn than most. So the, uh, the thing about the one-on-one is, you know, you have the opportunity to give the students the space to make some choices for themselves. And um, that is a really empowering sort of act act within higher education. Um, Now, of course, there's ways to extend that to the classroom. And and the more progressive classrooms do find ways to really uh, allow the students to become uh, contributing experts to the curriculum in the classroom. Um, But to form the skills they need to do that well, it does take the individualized care. Um, so, you know, I, I think um, I think that one of the primary jobs that, that any educator has today is to take students away from alienation. I think um, the session is is a fascinating uh, form uh, for teaching, and I, I would I would really appreciate it if you could just take us back inside one more time and. Sometimes you find out really what it is that you're doing when it doesn't work. And I would like it if you could perhaps either sort of just as a summary of your experience or any particular anecdote, show, show us a time when you were teaching someone who was r- resisting being unalienated, resisting getting out of the formula, or um, perhaps was uncooperative in some other format where the ideas that you've been expounding on here just weren't seeming to work. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question, Daniel. My mind's going like three different directions at once here. Um, Take all of them. Because <laughs> there's, there's different there's different cases, you know. So so um, I'm thinking back to one of my my first students when I worked in writing centers, who uh, was an architecture student from Korea, and she came to me. She was uh, doing really badly in in her humanities coursework, and she had worked with a couple of other people in the center before before I came on. And it wasn't working, and it didn't work for me immediately. Uh, but what I quickly discovered was that you know her English was pretty weak still, but her mind, oh oh wow, her mind. So she she had uh, a type of critical vocabulary where I, I had wasted a bunch of time trying to do sort of more uh, rote exercises to get her writing, 
as soon as I started talking to her about semiotics, <laughs> like I discovered this whole vocabulary that she had, um, a lot of the time it's, it's about figuring out where the students intellectually excited. And, and again, you know, like I was saying a little while ago, the students can do things that we don't know they can do. There's always more ability hiding there um, that, that the students don't know they can bring in. So, so that's, that's one way it often happens is that, you know, the, the tutor, the writing associate is, is trying to do one thing. It's not going to work because they're not, they're not building around what the student can do. Um, uh, another kind of common problem is the, you know, the engineering student who, uh, writing in the humanities, this is just a, a formality that the student has to get through, right? Um, like I've got to complete this coursework. I want my A's cause I want a high GPA. Uh, but really what I care about is engineering. Um, so, you know, that, that can go really badly for a while. Um, I've definitely had students who you go through five weeks, six weeks of sessions and you're not getting anywhere. Um, and you know, I think the turn always happens when you find a way to start really just cutting to the chase and say, you know, what do you care about? Um, where, where is your passion? And oftentimes they'll say it's in, well, it's in physics and math. So, you know, this is where, um, the intellectual work of, of asking questions, being a teacher who asks questions, right. Which is, uh, I think to my mind, the, the most important part of teaching, like, yes, there's, there's real knowledge we have to disseminate. Um, you have to have a thing to teach, but so much of it, uh, is about not delivering knowledge to the student, right? That word deliver is, uh, is really common in American administrative speak. Um, and it, it just drives me crazy. Um, cause you know, like what we're like, you know, an Amazon delivery driver, um, that's not, that's it not was that movie back then too. Stand up and deliver. Wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's right. <laughs> yeah. You know, this, the, the, the change happens when you say, okay, this is what the student's giving me. You know, we're, we're in a session where we're looking at, you know, oh, I don't know, um, a Toni Morrison novel or an, you know, an essay by Annie Dillard or Shakespeare or whatever. Right. And it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the things that the student's passionate about. So what do you do? Um, it immediately turns into a, a sort of creativity problem. Um, you know, one of the, the core skills, I think that anybody who works in a writing center needs is the capacity to take two disparate things and look for where they connect. So, you know, you're, you're studying a Shakespeare play and the student's giving you, well, what I really care about is math and physics. Well, then you've got to go into that text of the student and you've got to ask the student, is there anything here that resonates with the things that you care about? So you might have to take a step back. Well, like, why do you care about physics and math? What is it? Why don't you write down uh, a list of affective language about how that kind of material makes you feel? Um, write down a list of concepts that are critical to that kind of STEM work that, that drive your passion for it. Now let's go to, uh, you know, show me to, to a passage in that Shakespeare play where you see some kind of language that's about the physical world and about the character's interaction with an understanding of it. Um, can you see Shakespeare representing the human experience of the unknown physical properties of the world. Uh, there's almost always going to be something there, right? I mean, this is how, 
this is how thought works. This is how scholarship works, is that you, you look for areas of non-obvious correlation or overlap. And then that gives you work to do because, of course, Shakespeare isn't contemporary physics. Um, uh, the, you know, the, the Elizabethan understanding of the physical world is not exactly equivalent to ours. And yet, you know, it stands at this sort of critical moment in the formation of modern conceptions of the physical world. So maybe there's something there. There, there always is. I mean, that's the thing, Daniel. There's always something there. Um, Especially in Shakespeare. I mean, you could you could send the <laughs> you could send the physicist in there and say, "Look for the better metaphor than string theory." Shakespeare has it. He really does. <laughs> yeah, you know, but but it's going to be there in in you know like uh, Equiano or an Afrobane or you know any of the sort of texts that have entered the canon over the past 30, 40 years that aren't Shakespeare as well. Um, you know, and for that matter, it's going to be there in twentieth century literature as well. So so you know, I think the um, I'm thinking right now about, so one of the things we've started doing recently, uh, in our, in our center is trying to get faculty to identify really, really talented students early in their first or second year. Uh, the Cooper union hasn't been putting students up for major international scholarships recently. Uh, we've been getting some Fulbrights, uh, which is great, but we haven't put anybody up for like a Rhodes scholarship or a Marshall or a Mitchell uh, in the U.S., there's the Goldwater, these big, you know, really prestigious scholarships that, you know, give you an entry into uh, affordable graduate school and for that matter, into public policy. Um, and, you know, like the, the, the kinds of positions in the world where you can really affect change. So we're trying to identify those students and then we're putting them into ongoing sessions. And the goal is we want them in the writing center every week through the rest of their college career. And, and I, I've, I've been working with, with uh, my staff on this. So like, what are you going to do with that time? You know, you're just trying to give people the ability to think really carefully about a whole broad range of things. So I've been sort of developing this, this language around the intellectual playground. You're, you're building a playground with the student that you're working with. And what that means is, you know, whatever the thing is that the student brings in that they're thinking about at the time, start throwing different contexts at the student, like take them through this, uh, the sort of game I was just describing where it's like, well, what does, you know, contemporary physics have to do with a passage in a Shakespeare play? Um, what does, uh, what students who are working say like on, uh, autonomous vehicles and the technology behind that? Um, what does that, how would an architect look at that? Uh, I love those kinds of questions. How would a biologist look at that? How would a bioethicist look at that? Um, and, it's amazing the intellectual training you get when you're working in a writing center because you have to be so quick on your feet. Um, you know, I've worked at, uh, at another writing center as well where uh, I got to work with graduate students and you would go uh, one hour, you'd be working on a first year student's uh, you know, paper for a writing course. And then the next hour, you'd be working on somebody's dissertation in economics. Um, the kind of flexibility that you have to have, uh, it keeps you alive as a as an intellectual because i think you know we can the more teaching you do the more it can become a grind right i mean i'm, I'm sure you've experienced that one daniel <laughs> yes yes definitely and that that is wonderful i mean that spark as you say i mean jumping from I mean, completely disparate topics and and so on or different projects and 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 whatnot but what what what, what i <laughs> i'm just sitting back here uh so happy to be hearing that 
the, I mean, the leaders of the future need to go through constant writing program uh, teaching. <laughs> I just, I just think that's wonderful, and I wholly support the idea that you have there. And I see it's, I see it's viability and the reason for it as well. And and I mean, I'm sure you're already starting to notice uh, its effects. And this brings me to this question, which which I'd really be happy to hear uh, your opinion on. You talked earlier about, of course, we need to have a thing to be teaching. Um, and we need uh, to really, in the end, be able to get the students to say what it is that they care about. Those things seem to be clearly going on in that scenario where you have somebody in who may be applying, say, for a Rhodes Scholarship. But my question is, do you call then writing a thing that can be taught? Ooh, um, I think so. Except, you know, uh, with each passing year, it's hard to know what what writing constitutes exactly, right? Like, what what is that epistemic category? Um, uh, I think you can't teach writing alone unless you conceptualize writing as this you know, incredibly, uh, diffuse and inclusive concept. Um, but you know, one of the things I didn't talk about when you asked, you know, sort of, uh, take me through, um, a session or particularly like, you know, sessions where things aren't going well. Um, at the end of the day, uh, the student does have to have some kind of finished work, right? I mean, you know, in the case of the, the student applying for a Rhodes, uh, the student has to write an application essay and nowadays for the roads, uh, you actually have to sign an honor statement saying that you had literally no help producing that particular statement, uh, which is part of why we've conceptualized this uh, process where we just sort of try to make great writers um, with incredibly flexible minds. And then we have to set them loose and say, if you're going to apply for this thing, it's, you know, that part of it is completely on you. Um, but, you know, what do you do with, with uh, a student who has great ideas but is having a hard time expressing them clearly because that does happen. This is where I think, you know, clear thinking, clear writing, like I, it's not always uh, a straight one-to-one relationship. Um, and, and I wrestle with that all the time because I think, you know, more and more we don't live in a reading culture. We live in a space where uh, information is disseminated in short bursts of writing, right? Like tweets or social media posts of other types uh, video, especially, right? Uh, podcasts. Um, and the place of writing in the world is, is kind of fraught right now. Uh, I think that my thinking on this is, is in continual flux. Um, though I'll say that, um, a lot of the critiques of finished writing and of, um, what writing is now, they're still largely expressed in a relatively standard academic English, right? Uh, and they're published because editors, uh, see the language in a way that resonates with what they expect. So, uh, you know, I, what is writing now? That's, that's a really, that's a really complicated question. Um, it is. I, I, I mean, I unloaded that one on you, I suppose, <laughs> but it got me thinking. Sometimes you have to really hit someone with a tough question and then you start to come up with your own answer. And it got me thinking because that you, since your center puts writing uh, and thinking right side by side, it would seem to me that you still have in writing a material that is not something you can do without. Uh, just think of it this way. If you were going to be teaching somebody for just even a short period, a three or four week period, and no writing was involved, 
it wouldn't be possible, would it really? Yeah, that, that, that seems right. It's like, you know, playing baseball without bats <laughs> or something like that, right? Or playing yeah. football without a ball. Um, yeah, I, I think if you don't have that ability to, to get things down on the page, to, to move those signs around, right? I mean, it's uh, obviously writing can be notational just as much as it can be an act of communication. You know, writing for the self uh, is such a key part of the process. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I can't even imagine running uh, a single class period without having students write actively during that period. Um, if, if I had you know, a 90 minute, uh, lesson plan that didn't involve anybody stopping to write, uh, I, I really would be lost. So it's, it's hard to picture. I mean, even just in my day to day life, uh, doing administrative work and, and teaching, uh, I think teaching is largely a, an act of writing. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think that, um, whether we're talking about finished writing for an audience or we're talking about writing as, you know, a sort of developmental process, it's really hard to imagine the world without it. Um, and, and I do think that the world needs more of it right now. I do think that we're kind of skipping steps. Uh, I am really concerned about the, the pressure to publish. We don't talk about pressure to publish in the context of social media. Um, I've, uh, I've moved away from social media kind of to my, my own detriment. I, I deleted my Facebook account about a year ago in disgust uh, over the way they've handled themselves. Um, though I kind of wish I had it now that I've got a book to promote, but the, uh, but the, the rush to continually get language out into the world seems really dangerous and, and it's moving, it's, it's damaging thought because having the chance to get words down and then let them sit and move, move the language around, practice saying what you want to say and then expressing what you think uh, seems foundational to uh, a world that, that works. And maybe part of why the world doesn't work right now is that we were, we're losing that kind of writing practice as part of um, our public culture. I think there's something very important in that, because as you said earlier, you, you run into students who have great ideas and just have trouble sort of clarifying them or even at times expressing them for themselves. I think that that is on any given day, a lot of people and across a whole bunch of days, at some point, everyone, it's a natural, normal experience to be somehow, you know, in battle with your thoughts, trying to figure out exactly what you mean, what they matter, how to put them and so on. And, and that's, that's where writing steps in. It, it has that affordance. It works as that sort of, uh, if you like, prosthesis to the way our mind actually works. We need that record in front of us to be able to straighten things out. As you were saying earlier with the, uh, the signs on the page, um, it's, it's much more than in a grammatical sense, simply uh, how much can you hold in your active conscious mind at one point? You know, pages and screens are wonderful extensions. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think... Um, you know, when I was complaining earlier about that, um, that tendency of the older generation to blame the younger generation for being narcissistic, one of the other things that the older generation blames the younger generation for is dashing off their thoughts. Um, but I think you're totally right. This is everybody at this point. 
Um, and it's a consequence of the, the way that um, effectively writing has been neoliberalized, right? Um, now writing has been turned into this commodity that must be endlessly produced and consumed as quickly as possible to create as much turnover effectively really because of course we've been turned into the product that the social media companies sell uh, to advertisers. Um, so, you know, it, it's a, it's a crisis. I mean, I, I really think that a lot of the, um, the more troubling political trends in the world, really you could draw a direct line to the, the change in writing culture that we've experienced over the past, you know, 15 years, 20 years. If we can get back to the, just briefly to the idea of communication, I do want to just follow up on the writing associates in, in a moment, but if we can get back to the larger idea of communication or communications, as you'd mentioned earlier, you could say that much of the writing that you've just been referring to that's happening in social media circles and so on, the tweets and whatnot, that they're really the counterpart to blurting and speech when it just sort of comes right out, whatever's on your mind. And that is very often harmful to the person who's listening and not useful to the person who said it or even harmful. And it's usually very unconducive to any sort of advance in any sort of direction, <laughs> except perhaps backwards. When we think on the communication level, from my point of view, I would say that writing as a finished product, as you've been calling it, is pretty much the same thing as considered speech. And considered speech just takes time. You've got to have the willingness to stop. And I don't mean considered speech as in polished speech. Considered speech can have all sorts of ums and wrong words and errs and what have you, but it's somebody trying at it. And yeah, it's, writing it's, uh, is, writing it's is also necessary. Like. <laughs> it's what, what? Yeah, yeah, it's what think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about, um, uh, I re-listened to an old uh, podcast about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court justice who recently passed away. And there, they, there was this detail. They talked about how when she was asked a question, this is throughout her career, there would be these long, unsettling silences before she would respond. And there's, some, there's something in that, that silence. I mean, my guess is that she was drafting. <laughs> That's probably really what she was doing. I also had this realization. I, you know, I'm, uh, I continually have a hard time sleeping, and it's because I can't turn my language off at night. That's why I uh, keep I keep trying to get myself into kind of like a, a Zen practice to teach myself how to turn my language off. But what I'm doing is I'm drafting, and I think a, a lot of people who live sort of it the writing life have a similar good problem, which is that we're always drafting in our minds. We're always kind of um, considering different ways of saying something, but also while you're doing that, thinking about whether you really agree with the thing that you thought you were going to say, which I, I think gets back to that, that thought of considered, considered speech. Um, and yeah, it's, th this conversation has been kind of an elliptical way of getting at what, what the writing center that I work at does. But the elliptical approach is really the only approach in a way, because uh, I'll get back to what I was saying earlier. This is a social practice and it's, it's deadly serious. You know, the, the work of helping younger people and for that matter, helping yourself really check whether you fully agree with the things that maybe you've already been saying. Um, and 
finding ways to engage with other voices and, you know, finding ways to write and to speak that allow you to check whether you've really understood what other people say um, seems so critical to repairing uh, a lot of the problems that we have at the moment. Um, There's so much unconsidered speech right now. Yeah, not just in politics or in society, even in the sciences. I mean, bad writing... Bad writing in the sciences, bad research articles or methods sections, which uh, could be read one way or the other, they don't lead to any further research or they certainly don't help answer any questions that matter. Yeah. Um, And, you know, when when people complain about the 24-hour news cycle, what we're really really complaining about, and and I, I don't know if this is, you know, always what's hiding behind it, but it's it's that um, again that the neoliberal sort of paradigm where it's about just endlessly increasing production and consumption because you know we have to have growth. Um, boy, boy, could we use less growth, um, both in terms of economies in truth because we need you know less stuff um, and less carbon, but but also we need probably a little bit less language, um, but smarter language. Um, and of course, you know, language coming from carefully considered voices of, of all types. Um, I'd like to bring us back uh, one more time uh, to the Center for Writing, uh, because there are two features about it which really uh, sort of jumped out at me. One was uh, the, the, the name, <laughs> Writing Associate, but in particular, the as I counted, about 20 writing associates who are working there. Um, if you could perhaps tell us a bit about them, where these people are coming from and uh, the work that they do. Yeah, um, we're, we're so lucky that um, because we're based in downtown New York um, and also because we're a professionally staffed writing center rather than a, a peer tutoring based writing center, um, we get to hire, you know, really smart people, really accomplished people Um so our staff comes from primarily uh, from the other universities around New York City. Um, so we've got, uh, for example, um, a dance historian. Uh, he just he just defended his dissertation. Um, Buck, who's got a, an enormous beard uh, and a really wonderful meditative approach. <laughs> it's one of the things that I really miss about uh, operating physically uh, in person. Um, because, you know, Buck is a dancer. Uh, he moves through the space in a different way, uh, than other people do. Um, uh, we have, a at least two, we've got two professional historians, an anthropologist, uh, a number of people with MFAs, uh, in poetry fiction and nonfiction, uh, obviously some, some literary scholars. Uh, but the point is that, you know, everybody has, um, either, you know, significant progress towards a graduate degree or a graduate degree in hand. Um, and we really look for, uh, diversity of background more broadly, but diversity of disciplinary background. Um, because the more different perspectives you have coming into the space, the better. Um, and then of course, the other thing is we are looking for people who have, um, sort of the right pedagogical orientation, meaning people who are, who are genuinely, uh, caring teachers. I'd rather have somebody with with not a lot of teaching experience, but the right ethos, than have somebody who has years and years of classroom teaching, uh, but who really is focused on themselves. 
So, you know, I think in a way, maybe the best way to get at the staff and, and who they are is uh, to think about how we interview, which is that we give our uh, potential writing associates a piece of a sample piece of student writing. Uh, give them a few minutes to read through it. They can make marks for themselves, what do they want to do? And then we just sort of grill them on what they would do if they had the student sitting in front of them. And it's very revealing. Um, you can see whether the concern is genuinely for the student and the student's abilities and the student's intellectual development, uh, or whether they're just going to try to quote unquote fix errors. Um, and, and that's really the defining feature is, you know, we've, we've built a community that is really centered on care for the students and really centered on long-term intellectual development. I always tell the staff, I don't care if your students get better grades this term or ever. I care about whether the students are growing intellectually as writers, thinkers, readers, speakers. Um, and of course, usually as a natural consequence of the work that we're doing with them, their grades will improve. Um, but that's not the focus. Um, uh, on the term writing associates, so we call them writing associates for a very similar reason to why we don't call theses theses, we call them claims. Um, if you use the word tutor, suddenly you're in a, uh, a sort of hierarchical model where the tutor is the one who is tutoring. Um, you know, we'd rather have the verb be associating. <laughs> um, you that know, makes the, a lot of sense now after, after everything that you've said, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, and we don't want language that implies to the students that the, the staff they're coming to see are fonts of knowledge um, because again, like, I don't want to hear, uh, when we're physically in person and I like have my office door open, um, and we've got an open floor plan right, right outside of my office. Um, I can always get a, a sense of whether the space is operating the right way by, you know, whether I hear the associates asking questions, whether I hear the phrase, write that down. Um, and whether I just hear sort of the hum of, of thinking happening. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm always really concerned to make sure that the students know that, that they quickly figure out what the space is and how they can use it. Cause that's what keeps them coming back. Um, and it's also what keeps the staff coming back. Um, you know, usually people, uh, join the staff and they stick around for really until they find a, you know, like a full-time job where everybody's a part-timer. Um, either they find a full-time job or they move away. Um, it's really rare that somebody quits. Um, because it's a really pleasant space to be in. I mean, you're surrounded by these uh, wonderful students, by uh, people from all these other disciplines who you might not have met otherwise. Um, and because of the open floor plan and because of the, the ethos of, of the pedagogy, we want uh, a student who overhears or an associate who overhears something happening in another session that they're fascinated by or that they might have a useful source to pass along, or they might have a great question to ask. We want the sessions to sort of cross-pollinate um, because you never know where the new idea is going to come from. And again, because you want to build community. Um, so one, one-on-one session is a bit of a relative term then from what I'm understanding here. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's, again, that's one of the things that I really, um, I really miss about uh, the pre-pandemic uh, version of our center. You know, right now we've got all these one-on-one -on -one sessions happening uh, over Zoom, really technically over Microsoft Teams, which is uh, um, lesser than Zoom, um, but it works well enough. 
but you know the and it translates you know one on one translates a bit better online i think in some ways than uh, than classroom teaching does but you yes you're right the one on one model is a slightly a misnomer because there's it's the the energy of the space uh we also give out free tea and coffee to students uh you know we want to build a kind of cafe culture where um there's just all this intellectual ferment um there's a there was a running joke it, it took us a long time to do this but um when we when we managed to to get a little bit of um extra money coming in through um a really generous donor who believes in the work that we're doing uh one of the first things that we decided to do um on the advice of one of the writing associates was get a really comfortable sofa and it was a running joke like the sofa was coming it was like waiting for godot um we were waiting for the sofa waiting for the sofa waiting for the sofa but when we finally got it you know we put a little coffee table in front of it we subscribed to just a handful of of um sort of interdisciplinary journals um you know we got n plus 1 uh which I'll make a plug for because I really love n plus 1 um we got a subscription to the believer uh the new york times every day and you know though these are resources the students could go to the library having them sitting there on the coffee tables that when students are waiting for a session or sometimes just hanging out which is a thing that happens um you know they've got this nice material to look at and that they can talk with each other about it um and all the time I, i would walk over there and i'd see a student with the newspaper open in front of them and you know there's a pleasure to see a 19 year old reading the newspaper like the paper paper <laughs> uh it feels like a bit of an antidote um so you know the the goal with the staff and with the students is to to have a space that people want to be in and that feels like a real intellectual home that's great wow i i, I just love the sound of that. I, i want to sit on the sofa right now <laughs> if only i could get in the building um one one other thing i certainly wanted to bring up uh in our interview here and uh, you can say as much or as little as you like about it was the uh, writing fellows program which uh, is at which is talked about on your uh, uh, webpage and sounds quite interesting if you could maybe give us a, a bit on that yeah so uh, anybody listening to this who's who's worked in uh, writing across the curriculum slash writing in the disciplines um a lot of this will probably resonate um it's really tough work right uh, what we do is we um we have dedicated writing fellows we call them uh, attached to each of the three schools at cooper so uh, art architecture and engineering uh as well as one attached to the faculty of humanities and social sciences and their work is uh sort of multifold um they're available to visit professors classes and do writing workshops or for that matter workshops on you know how to read a difficult text um workshops on revision workshops on you know sort of developing a project um we also will counsel faculty on their writing assignments so uh, a lot of the work especially in the humanities um is faculty sharing a prompt that they've written with the writing associate and getting feedback on sort of what's likely to happen if you give this prompt to the students um you know people with a lot of experience teaching writing can sort of see uh where you might get something different than what you think you're asking for um so so the the program works as sort of pedagogical outreach um as a way to get writing instruction straight into the disciplines at the college um and also as a way to sort of um create 
you know, more of a virtuous cycle where students see us in the center as connected to the disciplinary work and then sort of see that um, the it's a coherent entity, right? That the college is functioning together. Um, but that's challenging. You know, the um, uh, how do you gain the trust of faculty in particular disciplines? Like, you know, what do you know about what we do? Um, and, you know, the truth is sometimes we don't. Uh, though I've been fortunate because, again, we're in downtown New York. Our architecture writing fellow is a practicing architect with her own firm um, who's passionate about writing, uh, also has a law degree. Um, our engineering writing fellow has a, an undergraduate degree in engineering physics and a master's degree in journalism uh, and um, publishes science journalism and runs a, a small uh, sort of science education uh, foundation. Um, you know, we're always working to try to find the right staff who can sort of gain the respect of the faculty and, um, and therefore sort of get into the classroom in the right terms. Uh, but it's really challenging. I mean, I, I myself was the engineering writing fellow for a number of years and, uh, all kinds of crazy things happen, you know, um, sometimes faculty bring you in just for the purpose of sort of, uh, demeaning you and setting you up. Uh, that kind of thing happens. Um, because uh, faculty can be very territorial, right? Um, I'm sure we've all seen that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, we've, uh, but we've made real inroads. Uh, my goal is to kind of keep growing the program because um, the bringing the kind of uh, thinking work in particular, right, and like helping faculty and the disciplines understand ways that they can help their students use writing as a form of thinking to, uh, to move more quickly into whatever the disciplinary work is. Um, that's a really important goal. Um, and we've, we've built some really great partners in the college who understand what we do, uh, and who value it and who, um, I mean, at this point, yeah, we have more demand than we can really satisfy in terms of, uh, the faculty's engagement with the program. Um, Wonderful it's, position. Uh, it's a process. <laughs> it is yeah. a process. And, it's a, and uh, it sounds like it must have taken quite a long time to establish it, the current state. Uh, is there anything that you could say? I see you've uh, chosen also very wisely the people that you send into the different uh, departments. Uh, but is there anything that you can say has seemed successful in convincing that you actually do need writing? I Even if I don't know necessarily all of your expert knowledge, you can still learn something from me. Yeah, that's, uh, there's no, there's no, uh, sort of secret formula. Um, you know, I think really it's, it's about when the professor's there in the room with the writing fellow and the students and can see in action, the kinds of steps that we want to take the students through. And also of course, see that it's, it's not about the writing fellow going in and dispensing knowledge. It's about the writing fellow going in and helping the students start trying out a set of techniques. Um, when the professors see that, they, they start usually to understand sort of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and sometimes they'll get excited and start trying those techniques out themselves. Um, but it doesn't always work that way. Uh, I mean, this is a classic writing center problem that faculty out in the disciplines see writing as really um, a formulaic thing. Um, their concern is my students have bad grammar, right? Or my second language students, uh, quote unquote, can't write English, right? That sort of classic, 
really problematic perspective on students who are, you know, doing actually quite sophisticated work usually, um, and taking real risks to study in a, in a different place than, than their own language culture. Um, so the work is, is so much about sort of moving from that, like, you know, we're producing polished, finished writing, and that's our only job to, well, wait a second, how do you get to the polished, finished writing? Um, and how can writing be something that enables students to do better work? It's like the work itself, not just the, the presentation of the written work. Um, so, you know, in, in engineering classes, which is, uh, you know, an area that I have a lot of experience in, uh, it's, it's about helping the faculty and the students see that writing is part of a design process. Um, you can't really do design if you don't write your way through it. Um, I've had some conversations with engineering faculty recently about lab notebooks and how important it is that students just get into the habit of always having a lab notebook. Um, even just that, like that's a big shift. Uh, and if you're not taking notes as you go, I mean, when you sit down and try to do the technical report, good luck. And that's one of the things that I often bring up in uh, my classes that uh, you're already writing. I mean, there's no way that you're not uh, recording data, arranging it, and also, as, as is usually in laboratory experiments, say in biology, a necessity, using a laboratory notebook. I mean, all of these things are part of the writing. And then if you can get someone to have an aha experience, ah, so that's also writing. <laughs> um, I, I think that would probably be quite conducive. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's, uh, that's just right. Great, great. Um, well, uh, Kit, you've been very generous with your time. Um, I'd just like to hit you with one last question, and that is uh, where your interests are leading you at the moment. So um, this is this will seem like an odd turn, but I've been wrestling with uh, trying to put together uh, both an essay and a book proposal. Uh, I've got a working title. Uh, the title is The University After Climate Change. And the, the question really is, if... If we accept the fact that climate change is happening, which, uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, you know, bizarrely uh, somehow is still a question. But if we accept that climate change is happening, um, we, we need uh, some ways to try to moderate its effects, right? We need to cut down on carbon emissions. But adaptation is going to be the most important piece. And it doesn't seem to me as of yet that faculty have really put together the observation that, wow, the world is changing. California is burning down. Um, uh, hurricanes are, you know, more frequent and more disastrous. Um, it's coming for us, right? Um, so either we can be ready for it and adapt and really think through what it's going to mean for the functioning of universities, or we're really honestly going to be crushed by it. Um, and that seems a bit dire and a, a bit of apocalyptic, but the point is, you know, I don't want it to be apocalyptic. So um, thinking through sort of philosophically from what, you know, the purpose of a university is um, in the 21st century, uh, the project is to try to sort of work through, you know, what are people doing right now? There's all kinds of cool projects out in the world um, trying to imagine what the future of the university might be. Um, but also doing some sort of theoretical work, uh, trying to understand what it might mean. And um, getting back to that, that sort of concept of like, how do you take two disparate things and put them together? Um, 
I hope maybe that listeners can see what that might have to do with the conception of writing work uh, that we've been talking about in this interview. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, very interesting future work. That is Kit Nichols, and he is the director of the Center for Writing at the Cooper Union. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Kit. Goodbye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye now. Until next time on Scholarly Communication.